You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you now, uh, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, the good news is, if you will, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we'll try to pick up where we've left off. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or a device that'll get you to one, then you'll see a, a paperback Bible into, in the, in the, in the chair, uh, underneath the chair in front of you. And I want to invite you to join us there. You use the table of contents. Don't be afraid of them. We'll, I believe it's page 475 on that, in that, uh, in that uh, blue paperback Bible. Uh, the, the big numbers are the chapters, and then the, the smaller numbers each by each little word are verses. And so we're going to be in the ninth chapter of the good news that is the gospel that Matthew tells us about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so up to this point, we've been introduced to Jesus by Matthew through his powerful birth narrative, through the introduction of, of his public ministry of healing, and even the, his first most famous of, of his public discourses, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The conclusion of Matthew chapter 7 and this powerful teaching, even the people around him marvel. It says that when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as, teaching them as one who had. Now this word is going to show up for the rest of the entirety of this gospel. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That is, Jesus was doing something that was a demonstration of power and authority, unlike anything they had ever seen. Jesus was the greatest show on earth at this point. He was uh, everyone who had heard about him was amassing in crowds to hear him teach and to see him perform these powerful acts, these amazing miracles, these signs and wonders. And so uh, I want to invite you, as, as we've been uh, out, of the, out of chapter 7, the conclusion of his first most, in, uh, like most important public teaching, he shows us his first and most powerful demonstrations of authority. And over the last few weeks, we've seen, beginning at the beginning of chapter 8, there's nine different acts of power, and interspersed in those nine acts of power are, are these, in, in these triplets, these introductions or interjections about discipleship. And so there's these, Michael, uh, my, I, that won't be the first time I slip up this morning, all right. <laughs> uh, after the first three acts of power, Matthew tells us about a call to discipleship. And then the last three acts of power that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that Jesus has unparalleled authority over creation, over chaos. He's Lord over the chaos and creation. He calms even the weather and the sea. And then he demonstrates an act of authority and power that is spiritual over evil, over the demonic. And then last week we saw that he has authority and he's Lord even over sin. The power of God in the flesh to forgive sin, to make us right before a righteous and holy God. And Jesus has been demonstrating these unparalleled acts of authority. And now we come to the end of that second triplet. And what do you see again? A pattern, a demonstration of discipleship. Demonstration of mighty acts and wonders, three in a row, and then an introduction to discipleship, three more and another introduction to discipleship. And so we're going to read the first part of that, of that introduction to discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. 
what it means to see him as Lord, what it means to see him as Savior. And so if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, this is a really good Sunday for you to be here because I want you to hear on, on its own merits Jesus' words about who he is and what he came to accomplish. So beginning in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, we'll read to verse 13 together. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, that is Matthew, rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." I want to teach you a word, even if you never use this word again. Anthropology. That is quite literally the study of human nature. Summarize maybe by saying that anthropology is what we believe about human nature. It's our operating theory of human nature. And so I begin, as we've begun at each of these different passages with a question. What do you believe about humans? What is the most true thing about humans? What do human beings all have in common? Even more powerfully, what is true for you as a human being that is true for every other human being that has ever existed. And however you begin to answer that question is your anthropology. It's your operating theory about what humans are, why they exist, what they're particularly good for or not good for. You might hear some of these kinds of statements come out on a regular basis, right? People never change. Or you might hear uh, maybe a, a little more lofty, to err is human. Or you might even hear someone make their anthropological claim public as a, as a demonstration and justification for some sort of activity. I'm only human. And what you find is that we are all operating with a theory about what we believe about who we are and why we exist. Now, maybe this is the first time you've ever thought about it, but, but I want to introduce you to something powerful that Jesus hands off to us. A powerful truth, provocative even for many of you, about what it means to be human, a human being, what it means to be alive. 
Jesus introduces us to a more powerful, I would argue, anthropology. You see, if, if you're like me and, and you're under the influence of most kind of Western culture, you have a fairly high anthropology. That is, that down deep, you generally believe that most humans are good. That at their root, they're, you know, at their, at their core, they're good. Because after all, they're capable of good things. And ultimately, we believe that we're really good. But, but, the, but the problem with that, the, the error in that, and I want to propose to you that a more biblical way of seeing this right out of the mouth of Jesus that will help you with this problem is that that always ends in self-righteousness. That always ends in, if after all, we're ultimately good, then we're always looking for ways to express our goodness, Our default is to believe that we're really good, and the result is we don't know what to do when people are not. We are flabbergasted and shocked when awful things happen. And here you'll see your your baseline assumption about what it means to be human comes to the fore. What do you believe about humans, and what do you believe about human beings when you see a human being doing something wicked, evil, or awful, or hurtful? Right? Do you find yourself going, well, it's just a bad apple? Have you heard that? That justification? Right? Or, or have you heard like the, well, I'm not perfect, right? As if to somehow justify, well, you know, I'm, even I'm allowed to do certain things. But, but here's the problem. Down deep, those are evidences that we don't know what to do with evil wickedness, or as the Bible calls it, the evidence of this brokenness is underneath caused by sin, That is that we've rebelled against something that God has created us to be. And here's what you know about believing the best about yourself all the time. Is that it causes you to be incredibly self-righteous. Because after all, you're good. And all you need to do is find yourself, right? And once you find yourself, then all you need to do is express yourself. And don't let anyone tell you you're wrong. Right? Don't let anyone, I don't know, say what you really are based on verifiable evidence or facts. They don't know who you really are. Well, here's what you find out. Self-righteousness is the great enemy of love. It lacks humility. It lacks any awareness of our own imperfections. And here's the thing. If you're always focused on your own righteousness, on your own rightness, on your own perfection then the other person in the relationship, no matter who they are or where they are, be it a group of people, an ethnicity, a nationality, or even a friend, will inevitably always appear wrong. And you will down deep wonder why they can't change to be more like you. Because after all, down deep, you're good and you're the epitome of existence. And you know this, It's impossible to be in a relationship with someone who never says, I'm sorry. But it's also impossible to be loved when you never let your guard down, when you have to believe at all costs that you are good. True intimacy requires vulnerability, humility, forgiveness. Now, the problem isn't that you disagree with what I just said probably. The problem will be that you think that applies to everyone else but you. You're, you're, of course people are imperfect. 
Of course, people are awful, and you can immediately think of evidences of other people's awfulness. But let me introduce you to this kind of anthropology, a view of humanity, and what it really means to be human. And let me allow, if possible, what you really believe about humanity now to come to light. That you need to think that you're exceptional. You must. Because deep down, we really, we really need, because we want this, we need and want this to be true of us, that we're exceptional. And so as a result, you see this in your life, that you have a, a desire to be seen, to be known, and to be understood. And the higher your view of yourself and of humanity, the more you'll hear things like, follow your heart. A high view of humanity defines people by their best days and even their greatest achievements. It even defines people by their dreams and by their aspirations. Those are all incredibly good things. But it denies that there is much going on under the surface, like heartache, doubt, sorrow. And Jesus introduces us to what I would describe as a truthful anthropology, albeit lower likely than the anthropology you currently have. It's only low in comparison to humanistic standards. It's actually very true. In reality, it's the only truthful anthropology. And here it is. Did you catch it? People are in need. He says, I want you to learn this biblical truth I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came to call the, not the righteous, but sinners. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he views to be Did you hear what he views people as? They wondered why he's interacting with these people that for them were deplorable, inhuman even. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Did you hear it? And can I give you some stats about your high anthropology that Jesus corrects here? Your high view of yourself and humanity is killing us from the inside out. A report published in the Journal of Pharma Pharmacotherapy found that from the years 2007 to 2019, the proportion of college students with prescriptions for antidepressants and anti-anxiety med medication more than doubled. And that's because in a world where we're defined by our best moments and our best achievements, Life boils down to one of two things. Either it's a series of audiences that you must impress, or it's a hostile environment full of potential enemies where failure must be avoided or, hided or hidden at all costs. Can you relate? One of you, the ways you can see this is just in how we try to explain things that are broken, things that go wrong. They don't make sense to us, and so we have to justify them or we have to enshrine them as, a divine, as some sort of like powerful exception. Have you heard this? Like anytime you think about some sort of historical injustice, some awful thing that some people perpetrated against another, it's either one of two things. Either it's not that bad and we justify it, right? Well, it's not that big a deal, which is inhumane. Or it boils down that act into as this like the exception, the most powerful, the most atrocious thing that's ever happened, which, which also is inhumane. And the result for you and I personally is that fewer of us take risks outside of our comfort zone 
because it's terrifying out there. You might fail. You're crushed. And many of you carry that weight and that burden, that fear of failure. And additionally, more people burn out. Side note here, maybe it should be the primary note, social media amplifies this in ways that we are not even fully aware. And here's the result. Do you have a hard time and feel like you're barely staying afloat? Do you experience difficulty, despair, and discouragement? Some days you don't want to get out of bed, and and some days you don't know how you're going to make it through this next season of your life. The result is you think you're the only one having that problem. And even now, you might be in this room, and your high anthropology makes you feel alone, right? And, 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 And social media does this even worse, but like, A Sunday morning could be just as bad, because most of you are dressed up fairly well. And you might be fooled into thinking that as you see all these people in this room on their best behavior, that you're the only one that's a mess. Do you hear your high anthropology coming out? A high view of yourself that you don't really need any help? Because everyone ultimately, at least in our culture, believes they're really good. And this is what I know about you. Based on the results of believing we're better than we are and trying to measure up to a standard that we cannot, we are now more tribalistic and fragmented than ever. Why? Because we've retreated back to where we feel like it's safe. We've retreated back to the people who look, talk, and act like us so that we'll feel like we're okay. We retreat back into our own tribes. You've seen this, have you not? It's not just that our culture is polarized, it's fragmented, right? If like five to 10 years ago, you were far right, in the last five to 10, year, five to 10 years, you are super far right, right? And if the last five to 10 years, you were far left, now you are, whoo, you are super far left. But in the last five to 10 years, if you were centrist, right? Now you are like hardcore centrist. And even if you were like a little center-right politically or culturally, even now you're like, look at these crazy people. do Do you hear it? It's worse. It's not just polarized. It's fragmented. And I want you to see under the surface what's going on. We are so obsessed with success and so terrified of failure that we have retreated back into our tribes to where we feel like we belong. And because everyone needs to feel safe and everyone believes they're really good, they're terrified of admitting what's true, that they are vulnerable, flawed, and in need. But after all, if you're the only one in need, then you can't admit it to anyone, not even yourself. And you're safer in a tribe of people that spends its time pointing out the flaws and weaknesses and failures and them. And this passage offers insights that I believe are the secret to unlocking joy in our life even now. This passage offers insights that frankly are under attack at every given moment, but it helps us see who we are in light of who God is and what he has sent Jesus to do for us. Because Jesus, as we find here, hanging out with the sinners, hanging out with the people that others would deem as unworthy, Jesus was not interested in the role models the moral strivers, and those who were living lives of utter 
public perfection. Jesus was not impressed by the achievers, the powerful, or the winners. And so Jesus was also not afraid of any of those people either. And Jesus made a straight line towards those who were privately and publicly characterized by failure. And those who probably couldn't really find a way out of the mess that they've made of their own lives. This shouldn't shock us. Apostle Paul tells the Romans in chapter 5 that for while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners. You hear that? Failures, a wreck, a mess. Christ died for us. Now, this isn't an excuse to heap shame on ourselves or feel self-loathing. In fact, it's freedom from it. And it's not an excuse to be devious. In fact, it's freedom from it. And here's the great paradox. People are more likely to feel shame and self-loathing and despair when they're working from a wrongly inflated notion of who they are and what they're capable of being. The higher your expectations are for yourself, the more crushing it is when you fall short and the more awful you are to people that you perceive to have fallen short. The tyranny of unattainable expectations fuels self-loathing and resentment, not only of ourselves, but of others. And here's what I'll challenge you with today. It takes a great amount of courage to see yourself as Jesus sees you. But in doing so, there's freedom. If you think that your greatest happiness and source of success lies within you, then you'll quit, you'll give up, and experience incredible despair when your real limitations and your real flaws come to the surface. That's why many of you can't handle criticism. Because after all, if your own greatest hope is your willpower, discipline, or natural ability, then you'll have to hide all of your failings in all of those areas. No one will ever know you. No one will ever really see you. And no one will ever understand you. And here's the catch. When you do that, and you shut yourself off from experiencing the giving and receiving of grace, love, and mercy, then you'll become a cold, shriveled, dead soul. But if you see yourself as Jesus sees you, then the setbacks and failures that you experience in your life will simply be the context for experiencing deeper grace. After all, every experience of grace comes from seeing yourself as God sees you. It opens up opportunities for love and grace and even meaningful conversations with people you might not otherwise have had. It frees you from the crushing weight of expectations, and it protects you from burnout. When you lose sight of this, that is, when you lose honesty about who you are and your own weakness and failure, you also lose your ability to laugh you lose any capability of humor to laugh at yourself or others. You lose compassion. You lose curiosity. You lose creativity. And you lose connection with others and love. So, I want you to see here how Jesus restores our humanity. Jesus corrects all of our wrong views of what it means to be a human being. Now, I want to show you a couple of things in these two sections. One about the calling of Matthew, and then the second 
about the associating with those who were associated with Matthew, what he describes here, or people describe as tax collectors and sinners. So first, I want to invite you into the first, uh, that first verse, verse 9, the calling of Matthew. And I want to invite you into it in a powerful way. This is, this is one of those things uh, I'll share with you personally. Uh, this is like one of those sermons. Uh, if some people ask, like, how long does it take you to write a sermon? Sometimes the answer is like, I don't know, 30 years uh, I've been working on this one, trying to figure this one out for a while. Uh, this one's about four years old. And uh, this came from a conversation with a mentor of mine. And so I'm inviting him just personally on this one verse into a place of, of deep comfort for me, how the Lord has, has begun to set me free of many different things. Now, I've tried as hard as I can to let Matthew speak for himself and not at every given moment compare what Matthew says to Mark and to Luke, although I've tried to allude to it at times, right? Mark actually gives a more lengthy explanation of some of these miraculous acts. And remember, Luke tells us that what we saw last week is that some friends brought their friend to Jesus who needed healing, and they actually ripped a hole in the roof to drop this man down so Jesus could heal them. Matthew doesn't care about that. Matthew, is ultimately, wants you to, Matthew ultimately wants you to see uh, Jesus and the call to follow Jesus in light of his power and authority. But here's one place where I can't help but compare the two. You see, the calling of Matthew, is, his Hebrew name would have been Levi. That means that he would have been, at one point, born into a fairly religious, or at least you know, in the tribe of Levi, Levi uh, a, a world of high expectations. That he would be in the tribe and name of Levi, a holy person, a person set apart, a person that is a picture, as we see in the Old Testament, of God's providence. And so listen to how Mark tells us this same story. It says, as he walked along, speaking of Jesus, he saw Levi, right? And how does he identify him? Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Pay close attention to that. When Mark introduces us to Levi or Matthew, did you see how he does it? He draws attention to who Matthew is by what? By his lineage, right? By his tribe, quite literally. Levi, the tribe of Levi. By his father, his, right? Think of it as like by his family or clan or tribal reputation, right? Levi, one of those people. And the one of those people was, as you see here, in this case, ethnic or, or the lineage of his family. Luke does a different thing. Luke, when he tells us the same story, he says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a, did you hear it? A tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Did you hear that? Did you hear how Luke introduced us to Matthew, the writer of this gospel? He introduced us to him by what? His profession. So up to this point, right, the, the Gospels, uh, the, uh, think of these other perspectives that maybe share the same eyewitnesses, or they were themselves eyewitnesses, the way they introduce us to Matthew, and they're all powerful, they're amazing, right? They, they tell us something about Jesus, right? That, that the temptation for us to have our, our own identity in what? In like who we associate with, where we come from, right? That's just the way I was raised, you might hear someone say. And also the temptation that we see of, of being defined by our doing, by our achieving, by what we are. And in this case, by the worst thing that we've done. Those are temptations that Jesus redeems us from. But notice how Matthew tells us this. Notice how Matthew encourages us that Jesus restores our true humanity. We saw it in verse 9. And Jesus went on from there 
there, as Jesus went on from there, what? He saw a Down deep, I know every single person, you want to be seen, don't you? You want to be understood. You don't want to be defined by some of the other things that people say about you, maybe on your worst or even best day. Because after all, if you're defined by the things that people tell you on your best day, then you're stuck in a prison, a tyranny of always being at your best. But maybe if you're stuck in a prison where people would define you by your worst day, then you're also stuck in a prison where people always define you that way. And, and, we, and none of us like this. None of us like to be defined in some sort of a category or group that we think narrows us. Because after all, that's one of the most dehumanizing things you can do. Let me tell you why. Biblically and theologically, we believe that human beings are made in God's image. There's something in each and every one of us. It's a, think of it as a fingerprint of our creator. And our creator, God, is vast and mysterious, and infinitely unknowable. And even though he has revealed himself to us to come to be with us, for us, and like us, there are attributes of God that we will never fully know because he's incomprehensible, he's too big. It'd be like saying that, you know, you, you can't fit the ocean into a water bottle. Not because the water bottle is incapable of holding water, it's just this, one's, this quantity is too great. And we'll never fully know or grasp the nature of God, and we'll get to spend eternity in his presence because of Christ, experiencing more and more of his goodness, nature, and mercy. And so, since we are human beings, created in the image of a mysterious and glorious God, we also bear the marks of that mystery. And that's why you can't boil a human down into one particular thing. And when you try, it's dehumanizing. Right? After all, what if the only thing about you were your job? That's especially painful for someone in the room that doesn't have one, right? What if you were boiled down to your relationship status? This is all I am? What if I boiled you down to the worst thing that your family has done and the reputation it carries, or even the best? What if I boiled you down to any one thing? And then you realize how dehumanizing that is. When you start to categorize people, you begin to create excuses for separating yourself from them. And look at what Jesus does. And look how Matthew tells it to us. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man. Now, he's not shy about his own past. We're going to find in a couple chapters when Matthew tells us where he fit into the arrest of the apostles, he also calls himself a tax collector. But notice how he was called out. He sees that, I think we find something powerful. Jesus restores our humanity by calling us to himself. He says that as Jesus went along, he saw a man. He looked and he saw a man. He saw a human. He saw through all of the awful things that had been said about him. Because after all, if you don't know, let me give you a crash course on what a tax collector would have been for these people. These Jewish people were under Roman occupation. They were, imagine, if you will, like some, some great superpower in the world taking over, right? Some great superpower that, that like, makes us a protectorate or it makes us like, a, or, or would, you know, would make South Dakota, let's say, like an, some sort of just kind of like part of their empire, right? But, but ultimately, we were ruled by some other culture, some other leader, right? And, and it was a pagan, godless, evil 
Empire. That is, the, the Romans engaged in all sorts of practices that, that these Jews would have found completely incomprehensible. But they were in charge, and so they needed help. And to solicit tax revenue from the people, they brought on board people that were of Jewish descent. They asked people to betray their own people to serve the man, to serve the evil, wicked Caesar. And, wouldn't you know it, because everyone's got a price, it's usually not as high as you think, people obliged. And Levi, or Matthew here, did just that. He betrayed his own people. Because after all, the way that they enticed those people to betray their own people and collect taxes from the people around them is that they gave them freedom to collect whatever they needed to make a living. And so at this point, they had a powerful reputation of collecting much more than anyone owed, and they were getting very, very wealthy and rich. They were betraying their own people, turning against them to serve the, the pagan foreign leadership to be a part of this corrupt, evil government. And not only that, they were getting rich and wealthy off of people because of it. I mean, I even heard this week, no one likes to pay taxes, right? But you and I are lucky, at least the people we pay taxes to are kind of nebulous, right? They're not a, a specific person, right? I don't know that any of you like walk up to, let's say, the man and have to shell out cash. In this case, it was deeply personal, these people who were collecting taxes knew them intimately and knew how to exploit what people had. Because after all, if you, can lie to, you can lie to Uncle Sam, right? If all he has is your routing number and, all, and the only exchange you have between the taxes you owe and the government who collects them is just a routing number, then it electronically transfers there and back. You can say whatever you want. But what if someone you knew intimately, who knew your background, who knew your family history and your family business all of a sudden had to collect taxes. Can't hide, can you? And now the potential for them to exploit you is great, and they took it. And so Matthew here finds it to be amazing. And so he tells us that Jesus, when he came and called him, saw his humanity and looked right past all of the awful things he had done and awful things that people thought about him and called him to himself. And friend, I hope you hear the good news in that. That Jesus frees us from the tyranny, the inhumane tyranny, to be something we were never meant to be. And Jesus does so by calling us to himself. Ultimately, following Jesus is submitting to his power and authority. And this little interlude about discipleship in the midst of great and public acts of power and authority is with a purpose. Jesus calls us to himself and exercises authority over us by calling us to leave behind. And notice, when you understand who God is and what he's done for you in Christ, you're willing to leave everything else behind. And so, if, if you hear the authority of Jesus to call you into a new life and leave old identity behind, if you hear that and are provoked by it, then you're hearing it rightly. That's what it meant to be called to be a disciple. Down deep, every single person in this room who is a, who is a Christian, experiencing the grace of, God, grace of God through repentance and faith, everyone in the room who is really experiencing this 
I mean, genuinely and truly, can, can speak of their relationship to Jesus in this, in this term, in like in these terms. He called me. He got me. And again, for many of you, becoming a Christian might have felt like it was something you were doing. It might have felt like a commitment you were making. Praise God for that. But something else overtakes us. When, when you realize that, that Jesus isn't something you pursue, Jesus is the one who pursues you. Christianity isn't something like that you get a hold of. Christianity is something that gets a hold of you. And one of the ways you know this is if you had the choice, if you could try to unbelieve what you have now seen and heard from Jesus, you couldn't do it. You could try, and you could run really far, and Jesus would chase you down the entire way. His spirit would never leave you, and even at rock bottom, he'd meet you there. And Some of you know that as well, and maybe some of you are doing that right now. I'm trying not to believe this. But to be called to be a disciple is to be called out of what we had once believed into who Jesus is. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not something you choose. It's that Jesus chooses you. And then your new life is based wholly around that. Right? One of the ways you know you aren't getting this is if you're negotiating with Jesus. Right? If you're like, oh yeah, I'm considering the claims of Christianity. I'm grateful if that's the case, if you're in here. But, but if you find yourself going like, well, I want to hear what Christians believe about, and then like fill in the blank, right? Well, what do Christians believe about, you know, about gender and sexuality? What does Jesus have to say about marriage? Right? What is Jesus? Right? Hear it. Just hear it. You're negotiating. You're negotiating. You are negotiating for lordship over your life. And that's, that's not a bad first step, but ultimately it won't get you Jesus. Because to Know and understand Jesus is to realize that out of the very depths of sin, out of the very depths of your own unworthiness, Jesus called you to himself. And all the rest of the stuff, he'll help you through it. But if you, if you put the terms before the Lord, you don't get it. Ultimately, when you put the terms before the Lord, you're saying something pretty power, powerful, your Lord. And in that case, you're missing the good news of Jesus. You're missing the good news of Jesus. Remember what I told you and I began with. Keep wrestling with your ability to find identity, express identity, and to measure up. Keep doing that. But when you realize that there is one who looks right through all of that to free you from every bit of it, when you realize what it cost him to do so, then there's nothing left on the table. And you sense that there's a, an outside power, a force, that is working on you. And then you begin to let him say who you are. And at first that might frustrate you, but you begin to realize what he says about you. Did you hear that? It's a whole lot better than what the rest of the world thinks about you. And when he gives himself to you, fully and completely, and when you realize that he's able to look past all of the other inhumane things that have been said about you by you or others, you realize to live for anything else is foolish. When you see it, it'll take over everything else. This is how you know that Jesus has restored your humanity. He's put you in a right place. He's put you back where you belong. You stop negotiating because you and I know what it really feels like when you feel seen and understood, don't you? You know what it's like when people see you, and I mean really see you. 
You know what it's like when they really value you. You know what it's like. You have a hint about, you know when, when you meet someone and you get the impression they would do anything for you because they genuinely value you. And now hear the power of this, that Jesus calls us to himself by giving himself. Here's what this means, roughly speaking. Uh, this is not original with me, not that anything ever is, but a lot of authors would say it this way, and I think it's really helpful for me personally, and I think it's part of the narrative we hear of how Jesus uh, calls Matthew and how Matthew relays it to us. You're a human being, not a human doing. You're a human being. There's an existence about you. There's an existence about you that is utterly and completely disconnected from what you do. You are not ultimately defined by what you do, good or bad. There is something about you. Now, this is powerful for Christians. This is the basis for our understanding about most of the things we have convictions about, that we believe intrinsically human beings have value, not in and of themselves per se, but it's a derived value that comes from our creator, right? The same way that like a, right, a, a Gucci t-shirt is worth more than a Hanes t-shirt, right? right? A, a name brand pair of jeans is worth more than, right, than, than some sort of off-brand jeans. Not intrinsically, they're the same thing, but you slap a name on it that has significance, the value shoots up. You get it? Multiply that times the infinite nature of God, and now you see what we, what we celebrate as Christians as the imago Dei, the image of God in people. And so we reject any effort that might dehumanize people, that might treat people as less, that might minimize their suffering or minimize their value or worth. And I want to say something. Christianity alone has this. There's no other worldview or world religion that has this. Because every other world religion or worldview has something in it where you like have to kind of prove yourself, earn yourself. There's no other religion that defines our worth based on what was given for it. You know this. I'm a, I'm a younger brother, so I don't mind hand-me-downs, so I love things like Craigslist and eBay, right? I don't mind wearing used stuff or old stuff, and I don't mind buying and selling used goods. Some of you are pickers like that, but you learn something in that whole business. You, you have things, and you're like, oh, this is worth a bunch of money, and I, when I contend to you, that's not true. A thing is only worth what someone will pay for it. That's it. You're like, oh, I inherited this thing, and it's worth like, okay right? And people who have bought and sold things, you're like, yeah, that's right. Put that out there. Put that in the open market and see what you get for it. A thing is only worth what someone will pay for it. And Christianity claims something that no other worldview or word religion can, is that human beings have value, not based on some ethereal or theoretical hypothesis, but because of what was given for us. We look at the perfect spotless lamb of God in our place for our sin and then realize, oh, I know what I'm worth because I know that someone paid a great deal for me. Now, look how that flows out into the second part. Very briefly, verse 10. Jesus then reclined at table in the house. Now, most interpreters all agree that this is Matthew's house, right? It doesn't say it, but it just says, it kind of has a genuine article here, or excuse me, a, a definite article here that, that, uh, that, that kind of points to like there's some relationship to what we just heard. So we've just been introduced to Jesus calling Matthew to himself, and Matthew followed him. And so then it says that he reclined in the house. But look at what happened. After this radical transformation where Jesus attributes value and worth by attaching himself to Matthew, a tax collector, calling him to himself, uniting, as we see here, even his own reputation to him, then something amazing happens. 
Jesus not only restores the humanity of those people being called to him, Jesus restores our humanity by seeing and meeting our deepest need. He reclined at the table in the house. Behold! Uh, think of that like a, a more modern colloquial term was like, check this out, or, and then you'll never believe it, right? And Jesus reclined at the table, and you'll never believe what happened next. <laughs> Many tax collectors and sinners. He called, he called Levi, Matthew, who was sitting at the tax booth, collecting unfairly, betraying his people. He called, well, then all of a sudden, all the traitors started reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And people who, who have a high view of themselves and and are living up to a high standard, will not abide by such a thing. Verse 11, we're introduced again to the Pharisees and the scribes who will oppose him till the end of this gospel. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with the traitors? And Jesus heard this and it says, correctively, those who are well have no need of a physician. But instead, those who are sick. And then he quotes Hosea, go and learn what this means. And he tells the religious leaders and teachers of the day, hey, go learn what this means. That's okay, Jesus, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, if you go back into Hosea this week, and I encourage you, in the first six verses, you'll hear a paraphrase of this, where the people that God was calling to repentance were starting to repent, but they were doing what you know what religious people do. They were repenting on the surface. They started acting religious, but down deep they had no heart change. They were just using the outward appearance of religion to get a benefit. And so the rebuke to, from Hosea to these people was that God desires real and genuine heart change, real steadfast love, real transformation, not just a visual or a visible and external act. Hear that? Jesus Jesus pointing to something here. Remember that what I just said, that you're a human being and not a human doing? Hear the language of Hosea. I'm not as interested in what you're doing as I am in who you really are. And you can hear in Hosea the call to God's people. God through the prophet Hosea is saying, I don't want your stuff. I don't want your acts. I want you. And Jesus restores our humanity by seeing and meeting that deepest need, namely, that we are broken, that we need help. Hear the good news in the second half of this. Jesus is not merely the friend of sinners, although he is that, but he's also their physician. I mean, it's one thing to be friends with people who are a mess, but it's another thing entirely to be able to fix and restore that mess. And Jesus comes, draws us to himself, calls us out into new life by meeting our deepest needs. How does he do that? Jesus calls us to himself by giving himself. It would have been understood that to have someone over for dinner, in general, and you, you kind of know this, is to somewhat endorse them, right? I think of the people that if you found out, you know, your friends were having dinner with, you'd be like, whoa, that's not okay. But since Jesus is conscious of their humanity and their need for restoration, so can we be. We can too. And this changes the way we see the world. When we realize our deepest, like our, the thing that we have all in common is that we are in need. And you felt it this morning, right? 
the first thing you felt this morning wasn't, I've got it all under control. The first thing you felt was something probably like hunger, right? Or tiredness, right? I see some of you yawning. The rest of Christ, the peace of Christ on you, right? It's okay. It doesn't offend me. It just reminds me. We're in need. You need sleep. And you woke up this morning not thinking, I've got it all. You woke up craving coffee, right? Or craving more sleep, right? <laughs> but you woke up this morning, the first thing that overcame you was an impulse to do something. I need, I can't just stay here. I need to do, I need something, right? I need a bathroom. I need breakfast. I need coffee. I need more sleep. Every single one of you felt that. And I want you to know that's the deepest most powerful human experience that you can imagine. And I want you to realize that because Jesus knows that and came to meet our deepest needs. And when that happens and we experience that need being met, that Jesus truly knows us and sees us, he knows how we need to be healed, he knows how we need to be forgiven, he knows the places in our life that need to come to light and be restored and when you know that, it frees you to see that in others. So let me give you a couple of quick applications. Very, very briefly, we'll, we'll talk about some of this. Uh, we're coming up on an election. I don't know if anyone you knows that kind of a thing. Here's my concern for you in that. Just a couple of quick applications here. When you, when you know your own humanity and how Jesus meets our need, you're free to see and understand the humanity in others. There's just a few things I've heard people say publicly that concern me, and I want you to be aware of them because I want you to see them for what they are, inhumane, and they will rob you of joy in Jesus. I hear so many people using some sort of version of, I can't, I can't imagine how anyone would vote for fill in the blank. Do you hear it? They have lost the ability to see the humanity in another person. And you know what happens after that. Once a person's not a human, you can do whatever you want. Once you're convinced that they're not human and you convince others in your team that they're not human, you can say and do whatever you want. And did you hear what they were doing? Why is your teacher, you hear, they, they ask why, right? They can't conceive of it. Why would this great holy man, he's engaging in all these acts of power, why would he hang out with these people? Did you hear it? They have lost their ability even to see their own humanity and the humanity of others. I can't imagine, I, I, I just, I can't even imagine why a person would vote for Trump and be a MAGA Trump supporter. I can't even imagine how a person would support the Proud Boys. I can't even imagine how someone would be a critical race theorist. I can't even imagine how someone would support Black Lives Matter. Have you heard it? Friend, the next sentence is something dehumanizing. And you as a Christian who have had your humanity restored at such great cost, the very blood and life of Jesus cannot tread into that prison. Because that inhumane place is where Jesus pulled you out. Now friend, go. Be present, changed by the gospel in education, commerce, business, politics. Be, I want members of Connection Church saturating the world. But friend, do not believe the dehumanizing views that the world espouses and be aware of their effect on you. If you can't even imagine how a person landed where they did in life, friend, repent. You don't realize the depths from which Jesus has pulled you. 
What are some practical acts of faith in response to this? Well, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see these things. There are likely places in your life where you've constructed relationships for the sole purpose of avoiding feeling your need. I mentioned politics because it's just what's happening at the moment. But many people have used partisan politics as a way to feel shielded from their need. Because it's a fun place to be, isn't it? Right? You don't have to apologize for anything, and all you do is just blame the other guy? Oh, man. That's amazing. That's tempting, isn't it? That sounds fun. I'd give a million dollars to hear Donald Trump just say, like, hey, guys, what I said was inaccurate. Right? I'd give a million dollars to hear Joe Biden go like, hey, I may have misspoke. I, I mean, I would give anything to hear someone in that sphere show this kind of humanity. Hey, yeah, man, I think I, I think I messed that one up, man. And here's the thing. Because they believe something that they haven't heard the gospel and you and I are going to demonstrate that to them, they can't do that. Because that would be an utter failure rather than is what we see here. That would be a restoration of humanity. You know how quickly... We would follow people who were like, hey, man, I'm really messed up. Come follow me in all my flaws and failures, right? We'd be like, I'm in. So there are patterns in your life that keep you from feeling safe, but ultimately see them for what they are when you avoid them. They are patterns that keep you Lord of your own life. And ask the Holy Spirit to show them to you and ask people around you to help you remove these things. See them for what they are. They're a denial of your need, your very humanity, and thus a denial of the lordship of Jesus and his ability to heal and restore. There are likely places in your life where you feel terrified of failure. Ask the Holy Spirit to show them to you and invite people to help to expose them for what they are. Places you don't want to admit your need and you want to remain lord of your own life. And in those places, ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you've likely dehumanized others as a result. How you think less of people because they are born into or have experienced things you can't imagine. There are categories of people and individuals that after all, if you imagine them, and I encourage you to do that, if you thought of Jesus inviting them to dinner, it would be provocative and offensive. And I hope it is. Because those people that you can't imagine what it's like to be them, if Jesus came today, that's who he'd invite to dinner as a testimony to what he comes to repair. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring those to attention. He knows that you and I are broken. Did you hear it? That's why he came. That's the whole reason he came. He knows you and I are messed up in these areas. He knows our fears and insecurities. And so for you, maybe your life is difficult right now. It may be because the Lord is letting you see your need. Don't fight that. Because after all, if you were aware of your need right now, that would be the worst thing ever. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus came as a physician. Begin to see your own humanity and how Jesus redeems us. Begin to see the humanity of others and as we are now called to humanize and love them. So who are the people in your life you dehumanize? Is it celebrities? Is it politicians? The family members? Who are the people you, you can't even imagine what it's like to be them? Maybe it's waiters and waitresses. Maybe it's homeless people. 
Or maybe it's people living in gated communities. And you found a way in your own heart to dehumanize them. Friend, you don't realize what you've done. You've covered up Jesus' power to redeem what's broken. And look what Jesus does in his power. He refuses to exploit the weak. What a crazy act of power. Now, in conclusion, I don't like things that reveal my insufficiency, which is ironic because I stand up here for about an hour a week and do just that. (laughs) I don't like things that make me feel human. I don't like things that make me feel weak, except that Jesus is different. He only draws attention to our insufficiency so that he could give himself for it. Friend, turn to Jesus. Have you endured things that have made you feel less than human? Turn to Jesus. He knows and understands and sees you. Have you done things to others that were inhuman? Turn to Jesus. He knows and he understands and he has come to make things right. Turn to Jesus. He sees through all of those things, reaches through all of those things. He's the one person in your life who's not shocked by it. And he's the one person who's come to fix it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness towards us. Uh, God, I I thank you for the mystery of of what it means to be alive, uh, what it means to be created in your image. God, I, I pray even now you would show great mercy, even as I've tried to discuss eternal and mysterious things with great frailty. Even now I feel the weight of it and and just my inability to communicate it. I pray that by your spirit you would begin to enlighten us and let us see what Matthew saw. Let us experience what Matthew experienced. The feeling of being truly seen, truly understood, and truly loved all by Jesus. Help us even now to experience the grace that comes from knowing that the Savior of the world was not afraid to unite himself to us, to unite himself to, in this case, our reputations, to unite ourselves to our sin, to unite ourselves to our frailty, taking all of these things upon himself, to in the one man reconcile all that is broken between us and God. Help us behold this mystery of what it means to be created in your image and for that image to be fully seen and fully restored in Jesus. Help us to repent of sin and help us to see what you mean to see in us, that we are weak and frail, and that is not a flaw, that is a feature of what it means to be loved and cared for by a powerful and generous God. Help us to see those things as reminders of your grace. Help us to have the courage, (laughs) help us to have the bravery to admit what Jesus points out in us that we are in need, but he is a good and generous physician who can heal all that ails us, our sin, our frailty, and failure. He takes them all as his own, takes it to the cross, and vindicates us by his resurrection. Thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. As we respond in singing, in Jesus' name, amen.